Good morning, everyone. I was going to tell you that the uh, elders are on their annual retreat, but they're not. They're here, which means I have to watch my P's and Q's. However, I'm still going to use my baseball metaphor. You have a pinch hitter this morning. If you will, uh, turn your Bible to James chapter 2 as we can continue our study of this great little letter that James penned. James chapter 2, the focus of our attention will be verses 20 through 26. I'd like to read for you beginning at verse 14. James chapter 2, verse 14. What use is it, my brothers, if someone says he has faith, but he has no works? Can that faith save him? If a brother or sister is without clothing and in need of daily food, and one of you says to them, go in peace, be warmed and be filled, and yet you do not give them what is necessary for their body, what use is that? Even so, faith, if it has no works, is dead, being by itself. But someone may well say, you have faith and I have works. Show me your faith without the works, And I will show you my faith by my works. You believe that God is one, you do well. The demons also believe and shudder. But are you willing to recognize, you foolish uh, fellow, that faith without works is useless? Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac, his son, on the altar? You see that faith was working with his works. And as a result of works, faith was perfected. And the scripture was fulfilled, which says, And Abraham believed God, was reckoned to him as righteousness, and he was called a friend of God. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. In the same way, was not Rahab the harlot also justified by works when she received the messengers and sent them on another way? For just as the body without the spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. Let's pray for our study of God's word this morning. Father, thank you for um, our elders. Thank you for the weekend that they had and that they're back safely. And we look forward to hearing um, what they have uh, talked about it and uh, planned for for our church family in the coming weeks. We thank you for James for this very practical letter that meets us where we're at. And I pray for our study this morning that you would be honored and glorified through it and that we would be challenged in our walk with you. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The little boy was out playing in the backyard when the preacher came to visit. So he didn't see him when he burst into the house dangling a dead mouse. He said, look, Ma. Look, Pa, I got a mouse. I chased him around the backyard, and I whacked him, and I hit him, and I whomped him. And then out of the corner of the eye, he saw the pastor, and he said, Then the Lord took him home. (laughs) That little boy did mistakenly what some of us adults do quite seriously. He thought that if he said something religious, he would be religious. 
But somehow, standing there with that dead mouse in his hand, it's hard to see that he had the faith that he professed to have. There are folks who will go to services on this Sunday morning who have made a profession of faith, and yet when you see the dead mice hanging from their lives, you have to wonder, do they have the faith that they profess? One person who is deeply concerned about large profession and little deeds is our friend James. He is against sham and show and pretense. He is against the large talking and quiet living. He believes in a a belief that works. As we've learned in our study of James, that James is writing to Jewish believers who have been scattered from Jerusalem and other parts of Israel because of persecution. Now they find themselves facing all sorts of other issues. One of the issues that they were facing was an economical crisis. This little letter was written in the mid-40s during what was known as the Mediterranean famine that Agabus prophesied in Acts 11. Because of that, the issue of food and clothing had become a crisis issue, and some were catering to, to the rich in order to gain favor. Others were ignoring those who had need, and James will have none of it. We covered favoritism a couple of weeks ago in the opening verses of this chapter and Todd covered the issue of meeting others' needs last week. James is writing to these believers who are facing economical issues and he writes to remind them that their faith needs to work, that they need to perform acts of mercy for their brothers and sisters. The very heart of James' appeal is an encouragement to act in mercy because you are folks who have received the mercy of God. James does not question whether they're believers or not. He assumes that they are. Look at uh, chapter 2, verse 1. My brethren, do not hold your faith in our glorious Lord Jesus with an attitude of personal favoritism. In verse 14, he addresses them as my brethren. In verse 15, he talks about brothers and sisters in Christ. He is writing to encourage believers to take their faith out in the real world and walk it around and do works, specifically works of mercy. We pick up our study at verse 20 this morning. And what James does is he offers a response to a foolish objection that begins in verse 18. But someone may well say, and James calls him foolish. Verses 18 and 19 are are difficult, but I, I think what James is addressing is an objector who says, you really can't demonstrate to me that faith is real by someone's works. I mean, you can't see faith, so how can you know that it's real? And James will answer that. Notice that he he talks about this objector as a vain, empty, shallow person. That's what foolish means. He wrote that without good works, a person's faith in God is useless, in verse 20. Not non-existent, but useless. The Greek word is argos. It means ineffectual, idle, or this one I love. It's unemployed. Your faith is unemployed. It's not working. 
this person is saying, James, I, I don't appreciate what you said about faith and works. You need to demonstrate to me that faith is real with these works. And James says, do you want to be shown, you foolish person, that faith apart from works doesn't work? Faith that has no works does not work. It's not working, he says. So this person who says, you can't see faith, show me even though I know that you can't. In rebuttal, James will use two Old Testament object lessons. The first person is Abraham. Now, of all the examples that James could have used, Abraham was a classic case because again and again he is called the father of the faithful. He is related to God by faith. And in this example, James is going to emphasize the joint role of faith and acting in works together. He begins in verse 21 with Abraham's actions that look to Genesis 22. But back in Genesis 15, verse 6, which James quotes in verse 23, we read, Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. You remember the story of Abraham? When we're introduced to Abraham back in the early part of Genesis, his name is not Abraham. It's Abram, which means, <coughs> excuse me, exalted father. Now imagine that Abram is sitting by a water well in southern Palestine. It's a hot day, and he's relaxing there, and along comes a trader on his way to Egypt. His name is Sam. Sam introduces himself. Said, I'm in the trading business, and Abram says, my name is Abram. That means exalted father. Sam says, that's wonderful. How many children do you have? Abram said, well, I don't have any children, but God gave me that name because he gave me a promise. Now imagine two years pass and Abram is at the well again. He's relaxing on a hot day in southern Palestine. And guess what? Along comes Sam the trader from Egypt. And Sam said, don't I know you? I know you. You're Abram, exalted father. Abram said, yeah, you're, you're right. You've got a really good memory, but something's changed. What's that? Well, God changed my name to Abraham. That means father of a mob. Sam said, wait a minute. You're you're now Abraham, father of a mob. Well, that's wonderful. How many children do you have? Well, I don't have any children yet. Sam said, how old are you, Abram, or Abraham? And he said, I'm pushing 100. Marry a young woman, did you? No, she's pushing 90. And Sam scratches his head. Father of a mob, you're 100. She's 90, and off he goes. You remember the rest of the story, don't you? When Abraham was 100, Sarah was 90. God gave them that son. They named him Isaac, and Isaac grew up. He must have been the darling of 
their eye. He was the son of promise. And then many years later, probably about 20 from that Genesis 15 account where Abraham believed God, and when Isaac was probably in his early teens, God came to him and said, take your son and take him on Mount Moriah and kill him. Sacrifice him. Can you imagine what Abraham must have thought? Not only did he say to sacrifice his son to kill him, but, but to, to kill this child, this young boy, not just kill him, but this goes against everything that Abraham knows about the character of God. Abraham lived surrounded by polytheists. They worshipped many of gods, and in some of those situations, there was child sacrifice. God hated idolatry. It was against his character. He never asked for a child to be sacrificed. And yet here, God says, take that boy, that son of promise, and take him to Mount Moriah and kill him. And you know the story he did. He was willing to do that. And the writer of Hebrews tells us that the, willing, that it, the reason he was willing to do that because he believed that if he did that act, God would raise him from the dead because God had made a promise to him that it was through Isaac that the nation would be born. Abraham trusted God. He was willing to kill his son. But you know the rest of the story. He raised that knife and God stopped him and provided another sacrifice. And James says in verse 21, Was not Abraham our father justified by works when he offered up Isaac his son on the altar? Whoa, wait a minute. I've been around Melanie Park a while, and I know that they teach that a person is justified by faith apart from works. What's this all about? What's going on here? Well, there's a a principle involved in what's going on here that's called usage determines meaning. Let me explain. We have the word big in our English language. And if I were to say to you this morning, Napoleon Bonaparte was a big man. Some of you would say, sure. Others would say, no. It would depend on the context, what we were talking about. <clears throat> was he a big man, historically speaking? Of course he was. He was an important figure in, uh, historically in France. He was a statesman. He was a military leader. He was emperor for a while. If you're talking about Napoleon Bonaparte is a big man. Historically, he was. Buildings and boulevards and boys have been named after him. However, if you're talking about size, not so much. He, he stood about 5'1", maybe 5'2", with his boots on. He is a little guy. Usage determines meaning. As it relates to the word big, We have the same situation with this word justify. Paul will use it one way, and James will use it another. If you will, turn to the book of Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3.
and camp out at verse 28. Romans chapter 3, verse 28. You remember early in the book of Romans, after the introduction, Paul says, I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it's the power of God for everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And Paul wants to the, write to the Roman church about the, the awesome truth of the gospel. But he realizes that before he can talk to them about this awesome truth of the gospel, they need to, talk, to understand the horrible nature of sin. So in the rest of <clears throat> chapter 1 and all of chapter 2 and some of chapter 3, Paul will talk about this issue of sin. And he concludes in uh, chapter 3, verse 10, there is none righteous, not even one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks God. All have turned aside together. They have become useless. There is none who does good, not even one. And then beginning in verse 21 of chapter 3, Paul begins to talk about the answer to the sin issue. And that's the death of Christ on the cross, who paid the penalty for sin. And in verse 28, he says, For we maintain that a man is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Paul uses that word justify there in a legal sense, in a courtroom sense. The judge will declare someone either guilty or innocent. When a person places their faith in Jesus Christ, God declares them right, righteous, because they are associated with Jesus Christ. They are one with him, united with him. Here, Paul is talking about the new birth, if you will. A person is justified by works. But notice beginning in uh, chapter 4, who he uses as an example of someone who has been justified by faith. What then shall we say? Abraham, our forefather, forefather, according to the flesh, has found. For if Abraham was justified by works, he has something to boast about, but not before God. For what does the scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was counted to him as righteousness. There's that Genesis 15, 6 verse. Now to the one who works, his wage is not credited as a favor, but as what is due. But to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly. His faith is credited as righteousness. Paul is using the word justify in one way. To describe a person who has been declared just before God. James will use that word in a different way. James chapter 2 verse 21. Go back there if you will please. And what James will... The, the, the way James uses this term justify is in the sense of to validate, to show, or to demonstrate one's faith. James is saying back in Genesis 15, the Bible says that Abraham believed God. It was counted to him as righteousness. Abraham was justified by faith at this point. And then James, excuse me, that's what James uses in verse 23. He quotes that verse. And the event on Mount Moriah, Genesis 22, is what James, refer, James refers to in verse 21. Abraham was justified 
on Mount Moriah. There was a point when Abraham believed God. He lived his life. And God came to him and said, sacrifice your son. And James says, in that act, he was justified. He was vindicated. His faith was validated. Abraham was saved by faith alone. But saving faith is never alone. Will you notice in uh, verse 22? You, you see that faith was working without his, with his works, and as a result of works, his faith was perfected. Now, James is going to say that in that act, Abraham's faith was strengthened. Notice he said, was working with his works. As a result, his works of faith were perfected, completed, brought to maturity. He's used similar words in James chapter 1, hasn't he? James chapter 1 and verse 2, Consider it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials. Knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Let endurance have its perfect result so that you may be perfect, complete, lacking in nothing. James is vitally concerned with the maturity of those to whom he's writing. He's saying when you endure trials with joy and trust in God, your faith is strengthened. You mature. Here, James says, when you act in, in faith, and, and, and that faith acts, it matures, it's strengthened. That certainly was the case when it comes to Abraham. And then verse 23, and the scripture was fulfilled, which says Abraham believed God. What sense was it fulfilled? It came to a significant point in the life of Abraham. Uh, Twenty years between when he, was, when he trusted God, believed God, and this act on Mount Moriah. Certainly there were acts of, and things that Abraham did in the meantime, but God, through James, points to this event as most significant. I'll just remind you, Todd mentioned this last week, but let me just mention that Paul and James are not at odds. Uh, some have looked at it this way, James and Paul are not facing one another fighting, they're back to back fighting different issues. James is writing uh, to Jewish believers who have been saved by faith through grace and have come out of the law and for some reason they've gotten into their mind, maybe it's the culture around them that faith is what's necessary and they really don't have to do much. James is urging them to add faith, uh, works to their faith. Paul, on the other hand, is looking at a, a different audience, a Gentile audience. And there are folks who have come into the church that were known as Judaizers that said, you have to add works of the law to your faith to be justified. That's not the case. Well, will you notice in verse 24, James turns, I believe, to his readers when he says, you... You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. James explains that our works of righteousness, in a sense, justify us. They testify to others about our faith. They are the evidence of the unseen, the evidence of the inner life that we have. 
in our relationship with God. Abraham's faith saved him. But that faith was a faith in God that trusted and acted and worked. The next example is Rahab, and we're familiar with the story of Rahab. It's found in the book of Joshua. <laughs> These two could not be further apart. Abraham was a patriarch. Rahab was a prostitute. Abraham was the father of the Jewish nation. Rahab was a Gentile. Abraham was a man. Rahab was a woman. They're poles apart. But by using Rahab, James is pointing and saying, look, everywhere you look, people are saved by faith. It's faith that acts. Faith that works. Those words in verse 25, in the same way, link these two illustrations together. You remember the story? Uh, the, the nation of Israel had been in the wilderness. They were now about to enter the promised land. The only obstacle before them was the, uh, the, the city of Jericho with its high walls and its army. Joshua thought the better part of valor would be to send a few spies in to get the lay of the land, and they went. And they ended up in the, in the red light district. They encountered Rahab. Rahab was obviously a believer. It's amazing to me that she must have seen that army across the river. She must have wondered what's going to happen. And then the two spies show up. But she's a woman of faith. Read that account in Joshua. She talks about how she understood and heard and trusted in the God who had delivered the Israelites through the Red Sea 40 years before and how he had delivered them from two superior armies just recently. She says, For the Lord your God, he is God in heaven and above and earth beneath. She was living in an environment of polytheism. They worshipped many gods. And Rahab said, The God of Israel is my God. I'm going to trust in him. And you know the rest of the story. She helped the spies. They got away. And Rahab was saved from the advancing army of Israel. Her name shows up in Hebrews chapter 11. The great men and women of faith. She's found in the ge genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ in the book of Matthew. Two Old Testament examples. Object lessons of faith that work. Well, James offers one other illustration, an analogy in verse 26. For just as a body without spirit is dead, so also faith without works is dead. That um, <clears throat> Greek word spirit can also be translated wind and breath. And I think that the better translation is breath. What James is comparing in verse 26, is the body of a man and a statement of faith and breath and works. James is saying that a man or a woman who makes a profession of faith is like a body. When you see breath in the body, 
you know it's alive. When you see uh, works energizing faith, you know that faith is alive and active and genuine and living. We have four children, and when Barbara had those children in that time, last century, I, I was not allowed in the labor room or the delivery room, which was okay with me, by the way. But I understand that when a baby is born, there is kind of silence. And then the doctor or midwife does something, and the baby breathes and cries, and it's then that you know it's alive. If someone falls off a boat, it takes a while to get him out of the water. He's not breathing. They give him CPR. The folks gather around anxiously waiting, and when he breathes, you know that person is alive. Here is a man or a woman who makes a profession of faith, and to the world, it's a, it doesn't mean anything. Even a cold and clammy thing, because you can't see faith. But when they see the profession of faith and works that faith produces, Suddenly they see it's alive. It's just not a statement of faith. It's a living and vital faith. James is saying in verse 26 that just as the breath energizes the body, so works energize faith. James is teaching that faith without works is simply a cold orthodoxy. Lacking energy or spiritual vibrancy and freshness. But when you engage your faith with practical deeds that benefit others, James says your faith comes alive. Well, that's the paragraph. What I'd like to do is talk about, I think, three lessons that emerge from this passage, this paragraph that help us have a correct view of what James is saying. The first is this. Speaking our faith without doing our faith cannot meet practical needs. It's easy for us to talk about faith and not do it. And sometimes we deceive ourselves in thinking that we've talked about something and, and we've done it. We talk about the Crisis Pregnancy Center. We talk about Lubbock Impact. We talk about Tom Cady and the little kiddos here. But we don't do anything about it. So it's easy to do that, and that's what James is so concerned about. In verse 16, one of you says to him, Go in peace and be warmed and be filled. You do not give it that what is necessary for the body. What use is that? It's useless. It doesn't do anybody any good at all. Faith without works cannot meet any practical needs. Secondly, our faith is invisible, but can be seen through our good works. That's what James argues in this section. This objector, whoever it was, was saying, you know, faith and works, 
really can't see the reality of faith through works. And James says, no, no, you can. Look at Abraham. Look at Rahab. Their faith was vital and living because they trusted God and impacted others. Thirdly, when good works are added to our faith, our faith in Christ is matured. That's what James says in verse 22. That Abram's faith was working. And in that working faith, his faith was matured. It was strengthened. It grew. Hmm. Abram's faith was exercised in Genesis 15. And I'm sure there were things along the way that we could have pointed to or God could have demonstrated that Abraham worked, but he chose that event on Mount Moriah. And in that event, Abraham's faith was strengthened. It was matured. We've been talking about small groups here a lot. We've been <coughs> encouraging you to be involved in small groups. Small groups are important to the life of the church. They're, they're important to the life of this church. And my hope and prayer for you is that you're involved in a small group, either a Sunday morning ABF or something during the week. They're important. But I'd like for you to imagine that there are two groups who are meeting during the week, and both of these groups are studying personal evangelism. They, they both are looking at strategies for personal and corporate evangelism. Uh, they, they both have developed a personal testimony in which they can share their faith with others. They have both read the excellent book, um, The Master Plan of Evangelism by Robert Coleman. One of the small groups consists of folks who have never personally or persistently shared their faith. They meet each week and they talk about evangelism, but they've never shared their faith with others. How passionately do you think they discuss the idea of evangelism? The members of the other group have done all of these things. The only difference is they're actually doing evangelism. Each one of them is boldly pursuing others to win them for Jesus Christ. In fact, God has used them to win several of their family and friends to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Can you imagine the difference between those two, two small groups when they come together and they talk about evangelism? To one, it's just a, an orthodoxy. We're talking about it. The other is doing it. They're seeing results. They're seeing God work. There's a simple and dynamic principle that emerges from this paragraph that I would encourage you to jot down and take home. It's simply this. That good works bring vitality and strength to our faith. James' goal in this paragraph is to encourage his readers to add works to their faith in order to meet practical needs. In this context, it's to extend mercy to those who have need. James is saying that brings vitality and strength to your faith. 
And I would encourage you, however you're gifted, however God has called you, if you're talking about a ministry, but you're not engaged as yet, become engaged. Add faith to your works. Not only is faith that works important to those whom you serve, to those whom you meet, but it's important to you as well. Because God can take that faith and work and cause those good works to bring vitality and strength to your faith. Now I want to close our time with a, a little bit of an uh, unorthodox fashion. And, and I need your help to do this. I was going to tell you not to tell the elders that we're not going to pray as we close, but they're here. So they'll know we're not going to close in prayer. I'm sorry. We're going to, so- we're going to close with a song. Actually, it's a chorus. It's a chorus that I learned a long, 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 long time ago in the last century when I was attending Sunday school. And it goes something like this. If you're saved, then you know it, say amen. If you're saved, then you know it, say amen. If you're saved, then you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved, then you know it, say amen. Y'all don't know that? I don't want to sing a solo up here. There are four stanzas. Yeah. Amen. Clap your hands. Stomp your feet. Do all three. You ready? Please stand. Here we go. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. Let's stop. Let's put a little gusto into the amen, okay? If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, say amen. Amen. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Saved and you know it, clap your hands. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, stomp your feet. If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. If you're saved and you know it, do all three. Amen. If you're saved and you know it, do all three. Amen. (laughs) If you're saved and you know it, then your life will surely show it. Amen. Wonderful, wonderful, wonderful. Thank you all. Greet one another as you leave. Have a great week.